so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC Podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and unfortunately, Brent is not able to join me this week because his household has been sick, so you can pray for him as you're listening to this episode. Instead, we're going to feature an important panel that our colleague Jason Thacker moderated online in June of last year. It's titled, Discipling Your Church for a World in Sexual Crisis. And it's a topic that is just as relevant today as it was a few months ago. This panel features Dean and Sarah, a pastor in Tallahassee, Katie McCoy, director of women's ministry for the Texas Baptists, and Andrew Walker, a professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. They're going to help us understand the biblical sexual ethic and how we communicate that in a highly secular context and how we do that with grace and truth. Let's listen to their discussion now. Well, I want to welcome everyone to our webinar today, Discipling Your Church in a World of Sexual Crisis, that's hosted by the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. My name is Jason Thacker. I serve as the director of the Research Institute, as well as chair of research and technology ethics, where I oversee all of our work in Christian ethics and public theology. It's a real joy to be with you all today and an honor to be joined by this group of panelists to talk about these really important issues. It's going to be a really fun conversation that's kind of wide ranging especially meant for pastors, ministry leaders, talk about how do we navigate some of the challenges before us with wisdom, with truth, and with grace. After our conversation today, I'm going to point out a few recommended resources uh, that you can check out, one of which I want to go on and let you know about. Uh, At ERLC.com, we have a brand new landing page, which is focused on sexual ethics. You can go to ERLC.com slash sexual ethics. And this is a host of content from across the years, a very important content, answering some really important questions, as well as a lot of new resources at ERLC.com, including a really helpful series that Dr. Kitty McCoy here on the panel, as well as Dr. Greg Allison from Southern Seminary, wrote on what is a man and what is a woman. Uh, some very important questions that would have been nonsensical even just a few years ago, but are really important questions that we as church leaders need to be not only asking, but also addressing as our people are wondering is what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? And then what is a man and what is a woman in the midst of a lot of the cultural and sexual crises that we're facing today? Well, first, I want to welcome our panel here today. Uh, First, I want to introduce Dr. Katie McCoy, who's the Director of Women's Ministry at Baptist General Convention of Texas, who also holds a PhD in systematic theology focused on the dignity of women. We also have Dean and Sarah joining us, who's the lead pastor of City Church in Tallahassee, Florida. He's also the author of a recent book that I encourage you to check out, Pure, Why the Bible's Plan for Sexuality is an Outdated, Irrelevant, or Oppressive from Moody Books. And then we also have Dr. Andrew T. Walker, who's an associate professor of Christian ethics and public theology 
at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He also serves as a research fellow for the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Well, guys, it's really uh, a joy to gather with you to answer some of these really important questions. I mean, there are questions kind of swirling throughout our culture, especially in light of Pride Month. Uh, There are a lot of various questions that people are asking uh, that I think is going to be a really fun, uh, important conversation. But before we jump into addressing some of the issues out there, I think it's important for us to be reflective of some issues that are fa- we're facing as a denomination and as a convention of churches. So, Dean, I want to start off with you. Um, in the last few weeks, we've uh, it's been extremely heavy for all of us, not only in our churches, but also as a denomination, as there's been continuous revelations coming out from the Sexual Abuse Task Force, as well as this kind of monumental report documenting countless instances of sexual abuse and cover-ups throughout the Southern Baptist Convention, as well as our executive committee. Today, as we talk about various issues related to sexuality, we must address the big perennial issue before us as a convention of churches, first by acknowledging, lamenting, and then being moved to action by God in the light of these gross injustices. So I want to ask you, as a local SBC pastor and a current trustee of the executive committee, Can you tell us how you all as a church are starting to think through the nature of this report, these revelations, and then how we as churches must do kind of everything we can do to help protect the most vulnerable among us from these predators? Thanks, Jason. I mean, my emotions after the report were anything from sad to outraged, angry, how can this happen, all of the above, especially close to home and saying, okay, this is happening on a broader scale. What's it like for our local church? I want our Mm -hmm. local church to be the safest place on earth in terms of being physically and emotionally a place people never have to fear for themselves, for their children. And if we, first and most importantly, if we actually do believe that all people are made in the image of God and have worth and dignity because of that, then any harm towards people should uh, cause us to do whatever we can do, whatever it takes uh, to ensure this doesn't happen anymore. And also, even more than that, our brothers and sisters in Christ, that's a whole other category of urgency that should happen to us. And continuing, if we're going to have any moral voice whatsoever concerning the topics we're talking about in this webinar today and don't have our own house clean, who are we to be able to stand up, you know, stand towards a culture uh, that is in sexual chaos right now concerning ethics? Uh, So for as a local church pastor, we uh, took the Caring Well uh, challenge seriously that the ERLC was involved in a couple of years ago. Uh, We want to make sure that we are a church that uh, is a safe place uh, for all people and that we take any form of abuse very seriously and are, are quick to act, quick to have measures in place, and are uh, quick to also call our own network of churches, our own denomination, uh, to care the same. Uh, so for us, it's not uh, any kind of scientific formula. It's just be making sure that everything we possibly can do uh, has been recommended by experts to ensure that our church is as safe as possible uh, for all people who attend, uh, that those measures are taken, and that if anyone ever comes forward with any Uh, kind of allegation, any kind of experience uh, in the realm of abuse, uh, that we are extremely quick to act and extremely act quick to do whatever is needed uh, to make sure that justice is served and that uh, the people, whoever makes the the claims, uh, feels that they have been rightly heard and represented and taken care of and that the church continue to be a safe place for them. Well, I know I have been very thankful for your leadership, not only as a local church pastor, but also as a trustee of the executive committee. Um, And I'm just really thankful for the ways that you've been navigating and thinking through this and leading us not only to acknowledge our sins, um, but to also lament and to be broken over these things and also being moved uh, by God to action on these. 
Katie, I want to swap over to you because I think a lot of people, when they talk about or when they hear about biblical sexual ethics or sexuality or kind of the sexual revolution, our minds go in a thousand different directions. There's hundreds of questions we're being asked. Uh, even in recent weeks, um, I've connected with a number of local church pastors, um, even in places such as Mississippi, who are saying, I have a transgender couple or I have someone who's same-sex attracted or I have a question about someone who's transitioned and wanting to become a church member. And there's all of these questions kind of swirling around, especially for pastors and ministry leaders. So I wanted to ask you specifically kind of a, the landscape of issues kind of tied to sexuality, to the sexual revolution. Can you help us to understand kind of the cultural crisis of sexuality that we're facing as a culture? And what are some of these main challenges and questions being asked right now? Sure. I think if we could boil it down to one thing, it is a question of who we are, what our human identity is, and what are the factors that we use to construct that? Essentially, when we talk about any number of the issues that you just listed, we're saying that identity is self-created versus identity is God-given. And uh, the human body, according to our culture, is something that is basically irrelevant to human identity, or at least incidental, and that our sexuality would then be without purpose or without design that would guide us in how to use it. Everything that we see in scripture from a biblical worldview is that the body is not just, it's a distinct aspect of who we are, but what our culture would say is it's a divisible aspect of who we are. It's something that you can divide from your true self and then determine your own identity completely separate from your body. Some of the challenges with that that come out of that are um, vast and far-reaching. I think of a few being the relationship between biological sex and gender, the relationship between gender identity and feelings. And those, I don't use feelings in a trite way. I mean that in a sense of your, your inner sense of who you are, what happens if that is out of alignment with your biological sex. Um, Some other challenges deal with the uh, prevailing ideas in our culture and how they are affecting kind of the the new ethics, the new morality that uh, we see in corporations, in education, in medical practice. It is reaching all of those different spheres of society. On top of that, uh, another challenge, we have some political forces at work to censor research, to indoctrinate children at a young age with specific views on gender and gender ideology. Another challenge and question people are having is how do we help someone with gender dysphoria, Uh, especially children? And the prevailing medical wisdom affirms something called affirmative therapy. And that essentially says that um, you would agree with someone's self-perception, not attempt to challenge that. It's, it's something that goes entirely unquestioned. And as a result of that approach, you have children going on puberty blockers or doing things like uh, hormone therapies or uh, different socialization changes, like changing their, their hairstyle, their clothes, their name. Um, in some cases, Schools are reintroducing children to their classmates as a different gender. Um, And in some cases, that's happening without parents' knowledge, certainly not their approval. And then that's a short step over to cross-sex hormones and surgical procedures, most of which have irreversible effects, um, but are, are essentially billed as the solution to someone's gender dysphoria. These things are coming to a church body near us. 
if they yeah. have not already reached us. Um, and that is just the most recent. The transgender issue is just the most recent. That doesn't include things like same-sex marriage, pornography, cohabitation, the decline of marriage and family life. And then another thing that we're seeing, this is uh, not far as well, is the slow but steady increase in proponents of pedophilia, that that is just another orientation, and they are becoming more and more vocal and more mainstream. I mean, even just hearing you kind of talk about that, we can just feel the gravity of all of the questions and the issues right before us. And I think for most of us, especially those who serve in local church ministry or pastoral ministry, feel the weight of that. Because I think it's often easy for Christians and others to kind of talk about these issues as out there, as if they're not real people struggling and dealing with these things. But these are fellow image bearers. These are people who are created in the very image of God, just like you and I, um, who are struggling, who are fearful, um, and are really being left in the wake of the sexual revolution. Um, but as we know, and Andrew, I want to come to you next, as we know, this didn't start in the 1960s. We didn't just wake up in the 1960s with this sexual revolution and questioning all of these prior assumptions. This is kind of a long kind of trajectory that we've been on as Western civilization, especially. And so, Andrew, I want to help ask you to help us kind of think through that. I think a lot of us, when we think about the various sexuality issues and Christian ethics, we do go back to the 1960s, to the sexual revolution is kind of the, the turning point. And while that is a very important turning point in history here, I wanted to ask you help us to think through kind of the long trajectory here. What is it about this idea of defining our own realities or this a sense of identity and something that we get to create ourselves rather than something fixed? Where did this kind of start and how did we get to the place we are today? Sure. I mean, so there's a temptation to want to kind of collapse this down into just one single explanation. And so I think yeah. we want to kind of resist that and to understand that culture, it's an amalgamation of a lot of different forces that are all pressing upon individuals and institutions in given moments. And so I, I, I don't know who said this. I'm going to, it's not my own, but I think it's a helpful kind of device to think through is that culture is a product of artifacts, ideas, and champions. Um, and so, again, ideas have consequences. That's something that we tend to downplay. Um, but ideas shape beliefs, beliefs shape behavior, behavior shapes expectations about what the law is going to forbid or uh, allow for. Uh, then you have artifacts. So you have cultural devices. I mean, would, would we be where we are right now without social media right now? Would we be where we are without like industrialized contraception in the 1950s and 60s? So all, there are artifacts in the culture that help lead us to this. Um, and then you have champions. You have cultural influencers um, who have the bully pulpit of the moment that we're in, who have the ability to shape the nature of people's customs and expectations around these issues. But one of the things we always wrestle with or we debate about is, um, does, does culture influence politics or does politics influence culture? And the answer is both. I mean, they're kind of inextricably bound up with each other. And so it's you, you want to think of kind of like the DNA double helix type configuration. They're bound up with one another. But I mean, at the idea, at the level of ideas, um, I mean, I could trace some of our current modern day pathologies um, to the 13th century, to individuals like William of Ockham, who is kind of one of the first philosophers who's denying the idea that there are universals. Um, and so reality is understood through particulars, not through universal grand narratives. 
Uh, and then you get to individuals like David Hume. David Hume says, um, morality is a function of emotion, not of reason. And then you have individuals like Immanuel Kant who will argue that, um, you know, God is at best an agnostic being. And so we have to kind of construct a morality based on the premise of agnosticism. And then you have Darwinianism, which again is the idea that materialism more broadly, the idea that there is nothing necessarily intrinsic or innate about human nature um, or fixed. Uh, and so then you fast forward that to today, um, we're living in a increasingly post-Christian culture by most sociologists' metrics. And so culture always abhors a vacuum. It means something is going to fill that space. Um, so it's it's not a matter of, as, as though all cultures are morally neutral. We like, we like to kind of trade on that idea, but it's false. Something is at the animating center of gravity that kind of gives us our bearings. And I think kind of the dominant motif would be this category of expressive individualism. I think that that's the one category that's going to kind of define who we are as a civilization right now. It's the primacy of the self. It's the idea that the self has to understand that its flourishing is tied to freeing itself from any obligations that the self doesn't create or doesn't consent to on its own grounds. Um, and so, you know, one of the famous historical quotes we look to is, is uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy in the KCV Planned Parenthood decision in 1992, when he defined liberty as the ability to basically define one's own concept of existence. Uh, and so I think that's kind of the apotheosis of, of expressive individualism. And, you know, honestly, we can complain and, and talk about how bad this is, and it is, but I actually see glimmers of like the secular cracks in the foundation beginning to show um, because what we're seeing is, is that human nature is not meant to be uh, a load-bearing structure and entity like our society is assuming that it can be. Eight-year-olds are not meant to answer the question of who am I and am I a boy or a girl? Those are something that um, in traditional societies would be formed and cultivated upon you by sane sources. <laughs> sane sources being... Um, religion, family, uh, bonds that you didn't necessarily choose, but you're born into. So there's a whole lot more we could say here, but it's it's not just one thing. I will end by saying this. We need to recapture, if we're going to see ourselves out of this mess, we need to recapture the idea that there are universals, uh, universal truths, uh, but then universal truths consistent with our design as human beings. Um, I like what Katie said, that you know, our bodies aren't incidental to who we are. Um, they're not divisible from who we are. Uh, well, that all assumes that there's actually um, a composite fixed human nature. Um, and so right now, we as Christians are some of the last few people who I think will defend that concept uh, of, of human nature. And I think we need to double down and plant some flags there and to um, be the champions of the fact that we have a fixed human nature and that it can be actually objectively known that who we are isn't actually a mystery. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. One, I really like the way that you frame that up as saying, I think it's easy for us when we look at culture or we look at various issues with inside the church or even outside the church to collapse it down to a single narrative, often one that kind of fits our agenda or that uh, seems to be 
well received on social media and things like that. And so it's it's helpful for us to see some of the complexity and some of the nuance and how this isn't just one single stream. But you point out, I think, or rightfully to say one of the most important questions we as a culture, but also we as a church need to be thinking about is what does it mean to be human? That question of anthropology, the study of humanity in that sense, um, as central to so many, if not all, of the pressing ethical questions and concerns that we have today. And I think as we talked about earlier, when we we're kind of addressing sexual abuse, especially within the Southern Baptist Convention, it's easy for, I think, Christians to talk about people out there and the other people and the culture outside of us and that we engage this outside culture rather than all, always thinking about how we are part of culture how culture is shaping not only people out there, but even the ways we think about things in the church. And so, Dean, I want to come over to you. And as a local church pastor, I think, as we've talked about, these issues are not just out there. They're in our pews and in our congregations and among our people as well. Various deviations from the sexual ethic, the biblical sexual ethic, questions of people who are non-Christians, who are becoming Christians, who are wondering and struggling about identity issues, same-sex attraction, etc., I wanted to ask you as a pastor, what are some of the questions you're facing on the ground to take this from the abstract and kind of the history and philosophical movements into the really practical, like what are questions are you guys facing as a local church uh, that maybe some other folks here on the webinar are also facing? Well, the first question we get asked often in our Connect class, which is sort of like a 101, you know, give me some information about the church. What's it all about? Kind of first step after visiting class is this church affirming? That's one of the first questions that we get asked pretty regularly. Uh, and we're seeing on the larger scale of local churches, we're kind of seeing two different approaches uh, to the, just let's go in the context of homosexuality, uh, to the same-sex marriage issue. We're seeing churches take kind of two common approaches. And one is that they're caving to the culture. They're adopting the culture's views. Uh, and they're just deciding, hey, that love is love, affirming. They're celebrating Pride Month. Uh, There's a full embrace of all things uh, LGBTQ. Or you're seeing churches just go silent on the matter. Like you sat them down and, and gave them a list. You, have, you know, are you you line up the scriptures? Or they they can even sign the Baptist faith and message. I mean, they're they're in line. But uh, the issue is, it's they take a completely pragmatic approach, and they know that oftentimes in this culture that we're in, people are going to leave if you talk about that. So they're just silent on it. You know, they believe what the scriptures tell us concerning these relationships. Uh, for our church, we're going to talk about it. Uh, because we're seeing uh, this kind of remnant that's growing larger is people that actually want to know what the Bible has to say. And they're tired of the revolution in their face constantly. And they're trying to raise their children to think through this in ways they didn't have to uh, when they were in elementary school and middle school and high school. Uh, so it's not only talk about it every week, but it's a, but if you attend our church, or especially if you're a member, you're going to you know sign that and say the message or, or claim to believe that. It's a membership requirement for our church to affirm that statement. Uh, but if you're just attending our church for a period of time, you're going to know uh, that we believe that God made marriage between a man and a woman, that sex is reserved for that sacred union. And we're unashamed of that. So we're asked, we're hearing those questions a lot. Uh, the gender issue, uh, not as much. We see more, I think, people just reading headlines and, and asking the question, what is going on? More than they are deep theological or, um, or questions of anthropology uh, concerning that. Uh, they're more just saying, what is happening right now? What's going on? So our job as local churches, I think, is to bring some clarity to the chaos, so I'm not going to, you know, hand them this intense book on anthropology. And so we're just going to talk and walk them through how they can navigate with their kids these things that are happening right now. My son, I had a transgender student who was already taking uh, hormones in his third grade class, third grade. 
you know, in a public school. So I didn't think I had to have that conversation about how we're going to talk about this, how we're going to treat this individual, uh, how we're going to respond, what name we're going to use. What about the pronoun issue? Like those are the questions people are asking is how do I handle this? How do I teach my kids about this? This is not theoretical. This is my coworker. This is somebody in my class. Uh, this is my son or daughter. Our neighbors have gone through this. Uh, Katie talked about the students who are being reintroduced to their class as their preferred gender and new name without the parents being informed. The big case that went national is our across-the-street neighbor in Tallahassee, Florida. And we live 10 miles from the Georgia line. You know, we're not in some secular, you know, crazed context. Like, this is not that far from what we call the Bible Belt. And so I think that's what pastors need to realize is a lot of the questions people are asking are not these deep, intense questions. They're more, what in the heck do I do? <laughs> so we have to be willing to walk with them and help them answer those questions of how do I handle this? How do I parent in 2022? Or as a high school student, what do I do like my son's school when the entire school has a pride week? You know, how do I handle this? Uh, if you're a, a Christian uh, that, that's dating, you know, how do I survive in this world where sex is expected now? You know, where, where cohabitation is the new engagement, you know, where, where sex is the new first kiss. How do I date in that world? You know, as someone who has, who's a believer and has Christian convictions, how, how do I do that? And, and I think we have to be willing to really talk about these kind of things. And that might require us diverting from our normal preaching schedule. You know, and, and our normal, it has to be through the book of the Bible. It has to be that, well, I think it's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of wrong ways to preach, but there's not just one right way to preach. And I think we have to be willing to take time every year, that's what our church does, to devote to talking about these things. If it's in more of an equipping environment or small groups or from the pulpit, we have to have people think through these things. Our college ministry does a, a big series on dating and relationships and sexuality every year. Like we have to be willing to do these things because people are asking questions and we want to answer questions people are actually asking. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, especially from a pastoral perspective, because I, I hear from a lot of pastors who ask, well, do we just need a sermon series on this or do we need to have a clipping event or something like that? And yes and amen. Let's definitely do that. But also work this into your regular teaching. And uh, this isn't something that's a one off question that you answer and that you don't have to address again. It's something that you as you're preaching through the word from Genesis to Revelation, you're bringing up these points and making these kind of cultural connections and one of the big questions that people are asking um, that even just, you know, even a year ago would have been nonsensical to most people um, is basic questions of what is a man and what is a woman? I mean, in the last six or so months, this question kind of went famous, especially in the Western context here in America, about what is a woman? And a lot of people struggled to answer that question. Some people didn't. And I think there are some very obviously clear realities at stake here. Um, but even asking that question took a lot of people by surprise. Um, and Katie, you and Dr. Greg Allison from Southern Seminary wrote a really great uh, set of articles on what is a man and what is a woman. Um, but Katie, you wrote on what is a woman, and you spoke about kind of the rise of transgenderism, a lot of the questions being posed about for women and girls about what is a woman. I wanted to see if you could kind of address that and kind of help us to think a little bit more biblically about issues like transgenderism. On, in one sense, it's really nothing new. All throughout history, you had transvestites. We would have called these people transvestites in just a, a few centuries, if not generations ago, or cross-dressers. Um, there was even a uh, emperor in ancient Rome who dressed like a woman, wanted to be a woman, wanted to find a surgeon who could surgically alter him to look more like a woman. 
the difference, though, is what we uh, might have lacked in public debauchery of ancient Rome, we have more than made up for in technological advances. And so now we have technological advances that are enabling some things that the ancients may have only imagined. And couple that with some philosophical ideas, like the ones Andrew was just mentioning, uh, expressive individualism and secularism, which essentially unmoors any theological meaning of the body. And that is very much the moment that we're in right now. Now, in terms of why it's shifted so dramatically to where answering the question, what is a man and what is a woman, is now uh, almost a shibboleth or a, a watershed answer, in some cases in your career and reputation, depending on how you answer it, we have to recognize there are two aspects to this entire issue. One is political, and it is inescapably so. And then the other is personal. And at times that political is exploiting the personal vulnerabilities and the psychological needs of people, especially teenagers who have gender dysphoria or gender confusion. So essentially the political is shaping the personal. You know, up until a few years ago, gender dysphoria was considered a psychological disorder. There was a, a former chair of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins University. His name was Dr. Paul McHugh, and he identified it as a mental illness. He said that sex change was biologically impossible. You could create a feminized male or a masculinized female, but you couldn't actually change someone's sex. And then the goal of treating gender dysphoria like every other mental illness would be to help someone's uh, perception conform with reality. But to hold that belief, um, and certainly to express that belief today, um, is not just out of favor with mainstream culture. It can really put people at risk for um, their professional, their reputational state. In fact, there's a, a researcher out in the United Kingdom who came out, I think it was that she just came out saying that I believe women are females, and she lost a uh, research foundation grant. And and destroyed her reputation. What we don't see, what we don't always identify, but it is everywhere present. Let me drill down on the political aspect because it's going to help us make sense of some of the things we're seeing in these headlines. Um, it's this belief that binaries are somehow the product of cultural oppression. And that cultural oppression is happening by the powerful. The ruling class of society essentially benefits from a gender binary and that is a mark of progress to just dismantle it, dismantle um, concepts of the family, dismantle concepts of sex and gender, disconnect biology from gender, and then to determine one's identity for oneself. This too, nothing new. Um, men like Friedrich Engels and Wilhelm Reich, they took the ideas of Karl Marx, applied them to sex, gender, marriage, family, Perfect example of this, by the way, the 2019 National Socialism Conference that happened just a few years ago, they had the tagline, no bosses, no boundaries, no binaries. So it's all tied together in this concept that progress is dismantling social structures, including the idea that gender is binary. Now, the 13-year-old who has gender confusion is not thinking in those political terms. Yep. Instead, that political idea and those cultural beliefs are affecting how people are responding to teenagers who might have gender dysphoria. They just feel horribly ill at ease in their own bodies. And gender itself, 
something that would be helpful for us to know is that it is a socialized concept. It is socially influenced in terms of an aspect of our identity. The question is not, is gender socially influenced, but upon what foundation that social influence draws and upon what foundation it is socialized. Incredible study a few years ago, a lot of you may be familiar with, researcher named uh, Lisa Littman found that among teen girls especially, gender dysphoria was a social contagion, meaning it was socially influenced from their peers um, and gender dysphoria was often used as a coping mechanism. There was some type of other issue going on in that girl's life. It could have been her parents got divorced, she moved, um, she's been bullied, she had a chronic illness. And a lot of times it's typical teen angst of teens feeling like, I don't feel like I really fit. And then that power of suggestion saying, well, maybe that's because you're actually a boy trapped in a girl's body or a girl trapped in a boy's body. And now what was rare 10 years ago has become the norm. Why is it some mark of incredible progress? Or is it that gender identity is being socially influenced by sources that it was not being influenced by before? So couple that with affirmative therapy, as I mentioned earlier, which just agrees with one's mental state without question. And then you also have a gender education curriculum in public schools happening at alarmingly young ages. Your uh, colleagues at ERLC did a study with Dallas independent school districts. Here we are in the Lone Star State. We're in like the holdout of conservatism. And parents would be shocked to learn what their elementary school children are being taught about gender identity. Um, and then combine all of that and you've got a perfect storm for what we're seeing today. Now, all of a sudden, to answer the question, what is a woman, and to tie that to biology, it is a political statement. It is a, a statement that reflects your worldview. And um, it's, it's one that is now reaching at the core foundations of human identity and how we construct that identity. Well, Andrew, I want to come to you next. Um, one of the things that I really appreciate about your ministry is that you are very clear in your writing and you're very pastoral, especially in one of your recent books, uh, God and the Transgender Debate, that's now in its second edition with the Good Book Company. And obviously, kind of these type of issues, especially around transgenderism, but really LGBTQ plus issues are kind of the top of mind for folks right now in the midst of Pride Month, uh, celebrated throughout the month of June, where we see individuals, corporations, even our government actively promoting these ideologies throughout every kind of fabric of our culture. I think a lot of people are wondering kind of pastorally some of these questions about how do we navigate these questions? Because it's easy to abstract them and to dissect them and to think about them kind of as these abstract concepts rather than people people who are struggling, people who are wondering, people who are questioning, being influenced and shaped by these kind of cultural ideologies. Um, and so I wanted to ask you just, I know this is kind of a broad question per se, but how do you think we should go about kind of engaging people who are genuinely struggling, whether it's from gender dysphoria or being asked of questions of pronouns? And there's just kind of a host of issues. How do you pastorally think that we should kind of engage, be able to engage our neighbors, not just not sacrificing truth for grace, but also not sacrificing grace for truth, kind of balancing this concept of loving people, loving people as they, who they are in that sense and affirming their dignity and value and worth as individuals, but at the same time, pointing out these realities um, and, the, and juxtaposing that against the biblical uh, sexual ethic. 
Yeah. I mean, to answer that, I'll, I'll kind of capitalize a little bit off what Katie said. Um, she said like drawing distinctions between like the political component to this and the individual um, struggling in this. Um, what I what I try to tell individuals to do is to separate out the activist from the struggler and to recognize that there are there are people who are not, you know, waking up wanting to put a human rights campaign bumper sticker on their car. They genuinely have these feelings or these perceptions that they're wrestling with, and they're not waking up thinking, I want to persecute you into agreeing with me or else. So asking that question, the person I'm dealing with, where okay, what, what station in life are they as far as kind of given over to the activist versus just asking questions? Because I think that shapes the pastoral response. Um, I think that when you establish what those differences are, it means uh, we want to both demonstrate grace and, and truth. Um, those are not to be in tension. I think a lot of times, I, I know this is my temptation, is to think of those as kind of either or or like teeter-totter like realities. But grace and truth are to be present in equal measure. Um, and they're, equal, they're present um, in equal measure in our Lord. And we're to follow our Lord. At the same time, what we see with Jesus is profound compassion and also profound truth-telling. He can be the person that says he looks on uh, the individuals and uh, the crowd, and they were like a sheep without a shepherd, right? Um, but then he can also say to the woman at the well, you know, you are in this particular sin, go and sin no more. So those, those are realities that we need to confront simultaneously. Practically speaking, for me, I tend to deal with the activist in a little bit different of a way than I do the person who's struggling. Um, and so with the person who's struggling, it's tell me your story. I want to listen to you. I want to listen critically. We, we don't just listen and someone gets a blank check to kind of say that their feelings don't get to be critiqued or evaluated, but we listen compassionately and lovingly. Um, but then with those individuals and, you know, this is more the case on social media. Uh, the individuals that tend to be more pharisaical and activist in their tone are the individuals that um, I don't feel that we have the right to insult, um, but we have the right to be a little bit more direct and assertive with and challenging them on. Um, but, but let me kind of round this out by saying this. Unless we have solid footing that what we believe is not only true, but good, we're never going to have the courage to enter the fray to begin with. And so, so much of my ministry, I feel like, is oriented to helping Christians understand that we are not the weird ones for believing what we believe around matters of sexuality and gender. Um, a, a lot of the times, Christians approach this conversation from the default of, well, the burden is on me to prove why my values are intelligible or reasonable or ought to be welcomed in the public square, I actually think we have better answers. So what that means is the person who actually says, well, I think a woman can be a man. I think the response to that is to say, okay, well, the burden is on you to prove that thesis because what the, the position I'm holding to is a position that not just Christians hold to. It's a position that religions and non-religious people alike have held to for millennia, multiple millennia. Why don't you tell me why in the last 25 years 
you think that you've kind of cracked the code of human nature and that men can become women. Um, but that all stems from confidence in an underlying certitude that when scripture is speaking about how God made us male and female, it's not speaking in this narrow lens sufficiency, what I, what I call it. It's, it's a wide sufficiency, meaning that Genesis chapter one is painting a picture of all created reality. It's not, it's not painting a picture of just Christian reality over here and secular pagan reality over there. No, it's all, it's all God's reality under his canopy, which means when, when the progressive disagrees with what Christians teach about sexuality and gender, they're not just disagreeing with Christians. They're disagreeing with sound reason and reality itself. I think that's really helpful. And I want to kind of shift the conversation a little bit because it's going from out there to in here, inside the local church, to be thinking about some of these questions. And I think one of the questions that we talk about is reality is, is on a, a webinar with this number of people, there's very likely to be someone listening or watching this after the fact that is struggling in these very areas, whether it's gender dysphoria, same-sex attraction, addiction to pornography. There's real pastoral kind of issues that we're facing and questions that we're facing, given the ubiquity of sin. And I think we need to call it for what it is, uh, that any deviation from this biblical sexual ethic, this created uh, norm of uh, one man and one woman for a lifetime and attorney in that covenant of marriage is sin. Um, but at the same, in the same respect is that we're loving people as uh, who they are as created in God's image. And so I wanted to ask you, Dean, um, specifically is what would you say to the person listening right now who may be struggling with these very questions? Pastorally, like what are you saying to them, acknowledging the reality of sin, but at the same time extending that grace and understanding? Well, I'm speaking to the believer here, you know, in the church. So the context is a Christian. I don't expect someone who's not a believer to act like they are, you know, or, or, or choose to follow a Christ they don't believe in through their struggles. I think one, we have to be really clear. I, I think you can be really clear at the same time, really compassionate. We have to be clear about what what God's design truly is and the greater purpose of it. But when God created Adam and Eve, when marriage first came into this world, he already had the gospel in mind. But that is the visible portrait of our union with Christ, the man and a woman and their union together, that one flesh union. And it's bigger than just marriage. It points us to Christ in the church. That's Ephesians chapter five. When Paul's kind of intermingling Christ in the church and marriage, it's like, which one are you talking about? Are you talking about marriage? Or are you talking about Christ in the church? And the answer is yes. One points to the other. So it's bigger than just feelings. It's bigger than just the moment. It's bigger than just the cultural chaos of our day. It really actually is a gospel issue. I know it's an overused term nowadays, but it truly is if we believe that marriage is the visible portrait that God has given us to show us the invisible reality of our union with Christ and the relationship between Christ and the church. And so I want to, I bring that up to say we have to be clear concerning that. We're not being nitpicky. Uh, we're not just focusing on an issue that we're just obsessed with. It's none of those things. We really believe that there's a thread of the storyline of all the scriptures from Genesis account to Christ himself to Paul, all pointing us towards God's design. And we can't be ashamed of that. So I'll make sure people actually understand that and then go, okay, in this broken world, I clearly understand that there are all kinds of deviations from that. Oftentimes when we talk about sexual sin, people just maybe think of just hookup culture or adultery. Uh, and so someone might say, well, why are we even talking about these things? Why are we even focused on these things? There's an abuse crisis in the SBC. And I think that's a fair question, but what is ultimately happening there in this crisis? People that were 
causing the abuse, that were performing the abuse, carrying out the abuse. Yes, they are in deep sin and in deep crime, both of those things. But if we really trace it all the way back, they're departing from God's design. They're taking this selfishly in in an evil manner, in a wicked manner, in a way that God never designed this to be. So yes, we're going to keep talking about God's design, even during an abuse crisis, because that is the foundation for all of this. What God has made, what the context of sex is, this marriage institution that God has given us. So I want to make sure that our folks are clear on that. So someone who's struggling, I want to make them first know that my my goal for them in life, if they're struggling with same-sex attraction, is not to make them straight. Like, I don't have that power. Like, heterosexuality is not the goal. Holiness is the goal. So I want them to be following Jesus. And what does that look like? It means that they have the exact same standards that I do when it comes to sexuality. And that is, I'm a married man. And for me, the only person on the planet Earth that I'm allowed to have any kind of sexual relationships with is my wife. And the same is true for the person struggling with same-sex attraction. The only person that God has permitted for them to have sexual relationships with is their spouse. And the spouse should be someone of a different gender if we're going to be in God's design. And so I want them to know that. So, so to say you're not in some separate category. I know you feel like you are, but you're not. The same standards apply. Now, I know it might be a little different for you because you're going, yeah, well, you have a spouse. Or I, but, and I do believe that you can, we should recover and pursue God's design. And I would love for that person to uh, not desire to be with a man and desire to be with a woman uh, forever. But I want them to know the first goal is not to get them to think exactly non-homosexual thoughts 24-7. The goal is for them to follow Jesus. And then from there, we're going to talk about how even these desires you have are not of God, right? Paul mentions desires, right? It's not that the scriptures are foreign to desires. These desires you have are not of God either. We're not going to champion same-sex desires any, any more than we're, than we're going to champion me lusting after a woman who's not my wife. We're not going to champion those things. Those are out of order of what God's design is for us. Uh, so then also, I want to be with somebody for the long haul. We want to be willing to walk with people and let them know that we're not going to leak this information out. Uh, we're not going to uh, make you feel like a second-class citizen here. Uh, we're going to put real church community around you. Uh, we're going to also be aware that creation is groaning in pain. Uh, because of the brokenness in this world for the return of Christ. So honestly, it might not get better for you right now, but here's what God's will is for you. God's will is your sanctification, that you keep yourself from sexual immorality. So in your discipleship process, in the same way we care about your heart when it comes to your finances, and we care about that you are someone who doesn't have envy in your heart and bitterness in your heart, we also care that you're someone who's sexually pure. And that we believe that God has made marriage not for mature people or for ready people or in love people or desiring people, but for married people. And he's clearly made marriage between a man and a woman. So what does it look like for you to follow Jesus and the truth of that reality and to be there for the long haul and actually do church community well? And that's the stuff that doesn't show up on social media is actually walking with people and being at someone's home and praying with them and, you know, and the people that know these desires they have and are all in, in terms of relationship and hospitality and inclusion into the group and, and all those ideas. Those are things that show up on social media. And those are the things that many churches are doing across the country. They're not just proclaiming this will be to be true. They're also proclaiming in action. We love you and care about you and want you to be part of this community because we're all trying to follow Jesus together. Just the things we struggle with look different for everyone. Yeah, I think that's a really important point to bring out the nature of the church as a community. We're the family. We're the yeah. body of Christ. 
and that we're to love one another, we're to weep with those who weep, we're to rejoice with those who rejoice, and that we're to bear one another's burdens. And for some of us, I have uh, friends who are same-sex attracted who very well may never be married. They have been given that sense, that calling into singleness, but they have the family of God. They have people around them, loving them, caring for them, including them, being part of families, local families, not just the, the church family itself. And so I think that's a really important kind of vision as we think through not just critiquing. I think that's easy for us to do in some sense, but kind of what does it mean to be constructive and to be thinking through and kind of casting a vision forward? And so that, to that end, we've got a couple more questions in our time together. And Katie, I want to turn to you for this next one is asking, I think a lot of times when we hear this idea of biblical manhood or biblical womanhood, there's a lot of baggage. There's a lot of questions. There's some eye rolling amongst some Christians and non-Christians alike. Um, help us to understand what is true biblical manhood and womanhood in that sense. I know that's a huge question, but to kind of drill down a little bit on it, what is it about God's design uh, that's good for us? I think often we think, well, God is this kind of pharisaical kind of naysayer who doesn't want us to have fun or enjoy life or whatever. Can you talk a little bit about the freedom that comes through a robust biblical understanding of manhood and womanhood? Well, I'll give it a shot. There are no shortage of books related to that very question. Um, one of the things that has happened, I think, in our evangelical circles about this question of biblical manhood and womanhood is we have to be careful that we don't confuse expressions of gender identity with the substance of gender identity. Um, what I mean by that is, for instance, we might think of certain virtues as belonging to men or women. Um, or even certain activities belonging to men or women. Cooking, perfect example. Cooking is associated with being women's work, a women's activity. And yet, who are the greatest chefs in all history? They're men. And so cooking itself is not a gendered activity. You may have a daughter who likes to play with trucks and uh, be in the mud. That doesn't mean she's a little boy trapped in a girl's body, which is what our culture today would suggest to her at a young age. It means she's an individual. My understanding of uh, biblical manhood and womanhood is this, and spoiler alert, you're going to feel like it's lacking a lot of detail, and that is intentional. So a biblical woman is a biological female who submits to all of God's ways in her life and her relationships. A biblical man is a biological male who submits to all of God's ways in his life and his relationships. And the reason I don't think we really need to get into the weeds on that is that this, uh, this connection that we've been talking about, that the body does indeed inform and guide our gender identity, that God has actually put in our brains, in our bodies, the differences of how we will approach and respond and think and relate. These things happen in the womb prior to socialization prior to um, any uh, suggestion that parents can sort of conform a boy or a girl towards masculine or feminine things. So I'm of the belief that if men and women focus first on obeying all of God's commands in all of their lives and all of their relationships, so that takes to the specific dynamics of marriage, then we're going to see biblical manhood and biblical womanhood fulfilled. I don't really have much more than that, because I think if we do, we get into some things that are um, cultural expressions or uh, things that, that frankly have caused a lot more confusion in the church than, than help with good intentions, but a lot more confusion 
than clarity. Well, Andrew, I want to end with you uh, kind of asking you a question about kind of the future and where we're heading. Um, and this can, I don't want it just to be seen as a negative, like all of the, the challenges that we face, but also some of the opportunities. Um, so as a church, when we're thinking through navigating kind of a world and sexual crisis, um, what are some of the potential future challenges that you think we may be facing soon, but also some of those potential opportunities? I love how you said earlier, some of the cracks in the secular foundation are starting to show. And so that's some opportunity for this biblical sexual ethic, but more importantly, the gospel to kind of go forward. Uh, so what are some maybe of those potential challenges, but also opportunities that we see in just a couple minutes here? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I've been saying for a long time that I think one of the next issues on the horizon is parental rights. Um, and so this is a, a kind of more of an abstract argument, but one of the issues that arises out of the Obergefell ruling is when the state steps in and then begins to redefine what are naturally occurring institutions and participants in those naturally occurring institutions. And so marriage is a pre-political institution that we would understand it to be. So the state has stepped in and redefined something that we would say it doesn't have the authorization to redefine, which means it just opens up the ability for the state to tinker with what the state thinks it has authority to do um, in the everyday humdrum of life with families um, and political communities. And so I think that's going to be an issue. Um, granularly, we think about that with if you're a parent who's not affirming your child's so-called transition. Um, we have now documented instances um, in Ohio, Canada, and Texas where the state has intervened against the wishes of parents. So that's a parental rights issue. I also think the parental rights issue is coming to um real expression in the context of the public school fiascos that we're seeing um, with increasing frequency. Um, and there, I'll just say that there's actually glimmers of optimism, right? I mean, what we've seen with parent activism at the level of involvement in Virginia, in Florida, uh, it's really encouraging. We're seeing average parents who are just simply saying, hey, our kids don't need to be talked to about these particular issues. And that's really encouraging. Uh, and then Katie mentioned this earlier. The academic arguments are in place right now to um, create a category for pedophilic individuals. So the, the terminology at the academic level is a minor attracted person, a map. Um, and so, you know, a, a lot of progressives will say, oh, no, that's just you social conservatives and you fear mongering Christians engaging in slippery slope arguments. Um, well, here's the issue. If you say A, you're going to say B eventually. Um, and so no one said, you know, the social conservative said, if you remove the conjugality of male and female from your definition of marriage, you're going to end up in a spot eventually where marriage can be pluralized. And now we have in the Harvard Law Review articles for consensual non-monogamy. That's because public policy is inevitably based on underlying principles. And so when you create the category of sexual orientation and orientation being this more or less neutral category, society is going to have to draw the line somewhere and to say, you know, where do you draw the line between this orientation and not that orientation? Uh, and so the academic arguments are being made. It's in the journals. Um, I think we need to be aware of it and um, protect our children. And to recognize there are cracks in the secular foundation. We're seeing it more and more, uh, especially in Britain, I feel like. Um, but even here in an American context, um, I watch Bill Maher every week and Bill Maher is getting increasingly red pilled every single week. 
because he recognizes the unsustainability of uh, so much of what's happening on the left side of the aisle. Yeah, I think these, obviously, there are a host of questions that we haven't been able to get to, even questions that I planned. I mean, there's just so much to unpack here. Um, and I think that there's so much that uh, these are really important conversations that we hope this is not the end of a conversation, but if anything, the beginning of. Um, and I know there are a number of pastors and ministry leaders who are tuning in, uh, Christians and non-Christians even tuning into this webinar to see how we're thinking about and framing these things up. Um, but one of the ways that we as the ERLC want to serve you is through recommended resources. Um, so right as we're ending our time today, I want to recommend two books, a series, and then a new resource that we have at ERLC.com. Um, but I do encourage you to check out uh, Dean and Sarah's book, Pure, Why the Bible's Plan for Sexuality Isn't Outdated, Irrelevant, or Oppressive, uh, that was recently published with Moody Publishers. It's a really helpful guide, especially for ministry leaders, church leaders, and then for everyday believers who are starting to think through uh, God's design for sexuality. I want to recommend Dr. Walker, Andrew Walker's book, God and the Transgender Debate, uh, that was published by the Good Book Company recently, came out in a second edition. One of the things I love about that book is that he's not only addressing some of the bigger kind of philosophical and theological issues, but addressing some of the practical questions that we haven't, weren't able to get to, like, how do we think about or use someone's preferred pronouns, for example? There are some appendices in that book that are really helpful. Uh, Dr. McCoy, as well as Dr. Greg Allison from Southern Seminary, we've mentioned a couple times so far, uh, did a What Is series on what is a man and what is a woman, respectfully. Uh, that's at ERLC.com. You can find all of those resources, as well as some of the other resources we've mentioned, at our brand new landing page. You can go to ERLC.com slash sexual ethics. That's ERLC.com slash sexual ethics. And there's a host of information. It's kind of our, our one-stop shop, our hub for all of this various content. Um, so make sure to kind of check back regularly to that page as well as follow us on social media. Um, but I just wanted to say to the panelists, thank you. I appreciate your work. I appreciate your ministry and the time that you've taken to join us today. And for all those who tuned in, thank you so much. And I hope you have a great day. Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.